This is Dre Olalia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 186. Oh, yeah, Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. But whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place mr hollywood himself presents the before the millions podcast and now your host deray olalaye what is going on good people welcome to a brand new installment of the before the millions podcast i am your host deray olalaye and on this installment this is actually installment one of three for this particular series with mrs alicia jarrett based out of Australia. And the reason why we're breaking down her episode in three different parts is because she just has so much value, so much content to share with us. And I was super excited to have her on, talk about her lifestyle in episode one, talk about how she's able to do virtual deals all the way from Australia while investing here in the US, uh, how she switched from the flipping business to the land business and how she used a team locally to make all that happen. Again, she runs her business and actually has, she has four businesses, but she runs her businesses virtually. And for many of us, it's a fascinating concept. It's something that when I first started the podcast, I wanted to make sure that I had most of the guests who came on the show be virtual or location independent entrepreneurs. And Alicia and her partner, Matt, they definitely check mark that box. So in part one, I'm really going to get to know how Alicia got into the real estate niche. We're going to understand that she started out flipping and then she moved to land. And then we're again, going to do a deep dive into her team, right? Her realtor, her contractor, her title company, her virtual assistants. In part two, we're actually going to do a deeper dive specifically focusing on her virtual assistants. So the hiring process, the recruiting process, the roles that each of her VAs play, she has four of them, uh, how she judges performance and and gives feedback. And then also we want to talk about the training plan. So look out for part two. It's not going to come out as the next episode, but it's going to come out here in the next few weeks as well. And also part three, we're going to get specifically again into her niche, her current niche, which is land flipping. And we've had a few land guests on the show over the year over the years, really, but more specifically over this year, 2021. And then I wanted Alicia to provide a little bit of a different perspective, again, doing all of this all the way from Australia. So super excited to have our second Aussie on the show. Our very first Aussie was Mr. Reed Goosens all the way back in 2017, episode number two, I believe. It was an amazing episode. And so will this trilogy be with Mrs. Alicia as well. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, make sure that you do so, so that you are automatically notified when new episodes release. 
to Ray's Tip of the Week. Hey, just in case you are just getting started down your real estate investing journey and you have that big question ahead of you, uh, where do I start? Uh, what vehicle should I use? How should I invest my money? Should I use my own money? What vehicle makes the most money? What source of income is right for me? Should I be focused on cash flow or appreciation? Uh, should I focus on my market or another market? Should I start investing in land, fixing and flipping, wholesaling? Should I go and get a rental property? Should I house hack one of these units? What should I do? I hear the Airbnb business is popping right now. Or maybe I should just stick to self-storage. Maybe I should invest in commercial apartments. I don't know. There's so many question marks around all of these real estate vehicles and these strategies, and I just don't know where to start. If you're one of those people, and trust me, I was one of those people, I think it's a rite of passage to be one of those people. I think almost every single guest that has come on this show has at one point in time been one of those people to just be at the starting point and trying to understand, like, how do I put my best foot forward? Even Jill, today's guest, she started out in fixing and flipping and quickly pivoted. And I mean, quickly, quickly pivoted to land when she realized how she wanted to invest as a virtual investor. Guys, I started out with traditional financing. I did house hacking. I did Airbnbs. I went into the apartment space until, again, I figured out I stumbled around for a little bit until I figured out exactly how I wanted to be an investor. If I can shave off a year, two years, three years, 10 years off of the stumbling around phase that you're going through or you're going to go through, then I want to do that. And I have a guide over at beforethemillions.com forward slash guide, G-U-I-D-E, where you can literally just download this free information that helps you really set your best foot forward. And it's going to ask you a series of questions like, hey, what resources are you working with? What's your timeline? And some other critical and important questions to make sure that we can start weeding out some of these real estate vehicles that aren't particularly for you. I always like to tell people, hey, what's Hey, what's best for you may not necessarily be best for me and my goals and what stage of my investing journey I'm on. You got to always make sure that just because this episode sounds amazing or this vehicle sounds great, you don't go down that path just because the money's good. You have to understand your situation in totality, and my guide helps you decipher through that. Not only does it do that, but then it catalogs all of the best podcast episodes for the specific niche that you decide to go down towards. So you're able to really get plugged in almost immediately to a millionaire real estate investor in that space that's going to take you from beginning to end, as we always do on these shows of their Before the Millions journey. So again, that guide is over at beforethemillions.com forward slash guide. If you're just now starting out and you are a real estate newbie trying to figure out your path, this guide is the best guide for you. And it's over at beforethemillions.com forward slash G-U-I-D-E. Now let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. By the way, I call a job an acronym, J-O-B, just over broke, Mm -hmm. because most people live paycheck to paycheck. And uh, and I was actually in a really great job. Uh, My background was in human resources and uh, organizational development. So I was in a great six-figure job, but I was so uninspired. I was so stressed at always solving other people's problems and listening to people's whinging and moaning and, and a whole range of things. And and to some degree, I loved what I did because I got to work with great people. But from another degree, I kept, every time I went on a, on a vacation, I'd come back to the, to the job and think, do I really want to be doing this for the rest of my life? And um, so I had that epiphany moment of, well, there's only one person in control of this, and that's me. 
So I'm either going to make a choice to leave this job and go out and spread my wings and do something or put up with this for the rest of my life. But then I don't want to look back when I'm 60 or 70 and heading down to retirement and go, gee, I wish I had tried. So I guess it was that heart-to-heart moment with myself. Um, And that was when I was about 29, 30. uh, And then I I didn't do anything for about another six years. So I had the first heart-to-heart but then gave into the fear, which is very common for a lot of people, gave into the fear of why would I leave a good income? Like why would I really step away from that into nothing? So fast forward another five or six years from there and another pivotal moment happened where, again, I'd moved up the ranks in in my career and was doing some great stuff and uh, and someone actually said to me, uh, you know, you know how you have people in your life, Doray, that they will ask you a question and it switches on a light bulb, but they don't realize the impact that they've just had. Right. So someone was asking me a question about when I was doing um, coaching with them, and they said, "You know, you're really good at this. Have you thought of doing this as a business?" Literally the next day, I made a decision to leave my job. So my first step into entrepreneurship was actually for me to to leave that six figure job go and get some education in in a totally different space and start a consulting and coaching practice, which was over a decade ago now, um, which was awesome. But then fast forward another 10 years from there, and uh, and again, I had the same moment where it was like I've created a business for myself, but my business had turned into a job. It had really got to that stalling point of I can't go any further with this and I don't know if I have the time or energy to really want to grow this because am I – that passionate about it that I can do this from anywhere in the world. And that's one of my drivers to is travel, which I'm very much missing at the moment. My partner and I love to travel. And uh, and when I had gotten to that point in the business, I, it was reliant on me physically being somewhere in order for that business to run. So another pivotal moment was, okay, do I want to look back again when I'm 60 or 70 and go, I wish I had pivoted at that point in time because Otherwise, I'm stuck relying on my time and presence in order to run my business. So that's when we got into real estate investing. How did you? Started, yeah, how did you? Started how did looking you, at. How were you got, introduced to it? Uh, it was really quite funny because um, I went to uh, what's called a National Achievers Congress. I was very big into going and watching other keynote speakers and seeing what what people do in their businesses. I find I, I'm an externally motivated person that I get inspired by other people's stories, which is why I love podcasts as well. And I went along to this National Achievers Congress and Tony Robbins was one of the speakers and I've been to all of his programs and I absolutely adore him. And uh, and there was a whole bunch of other speakers there. And one of the speakers was actually offering a real estate training course on how to do real estate in the US from Australia. And I thought, hmm, that's really interesting. And part of what he was talking about, Dairay, that I got passionate about was being able to help communities. So this is going back five years ago now where the fix and flip scene was very big and people were going in and helping people that had distressed homes that, you know, due to the crash, they needed help to get rid of these houses and, you know, turn around communities and and start to beautify areas. And I thought if I can help somebody as well, um, not only fix up a home, but then get a family back into a home, that's something that I'm pretty passionate about. And affordable housing is something that Matt and I are always having on our radar. So I was one of these people that ran to the back of the room, signed up for a course and came home that night and said to my partner, I just signed us up for a real estate course in the US. And he's like, you did what? (laughs) Came out of nowhere. And uh, I said, yep, we're going along to this course. So he being the, um, the, what I call the healthy skeptic in our relationship, 
he said to me, all right, I'll come with you. But on day one, this is like a four-day course, I think, going back. On day one, if we get to morning tea or lunchtime and uh, and I think that this is this is a bit of BS, I'm out of there. I said, cool, no problems. Just come along with me and, and see what you think. And we got to that first break on day one and he looked at me and he was just like, I think we're onto something here. This is amazing. <laughs> and so here we are, fast forward, you know, four and a bit years later and we, we've done the fix and flips. We're now into land wholesaling. Um, we've got four businesses in the States where we're launching different products and our business just keeps on growing. And coming back to that pivotal moment, we've been able to do it from anywhere in the world as long as we've got a laptop and a phone. We've, we've, I mean, this, this podcast is, is predicated on lifestyle design. So, you know, I'm eating all of this up. I'm loving this. And we're going to get to a little bit more lifestyle design here shortly. But what, what drew you to US, a US business, right? I mean, you're all the way in Australia and there's yeah. so many places in the world you can do business. What drew you to a US-based business? Yeah, really good question, Dara. And I guess it was um, when we did some more research into this, because we did look at different options, right? We didn't just jump straight in blindly. We, we thought about, well, could we do this in Australia? Uh, after all the things that we'd learned, could we do this in other countries? Um, and it really came back to a couple of fundamentals. The first one was what are the different real estate strategies that are at our disposal in certain um, countries? In Australia, you can't do half of the things that you can do in the States with real estate. Tell me, tell me, of, t- tell me why. Tell me what are those things and why. Yeah, yeah, tell you why. So the, the access to information. So in Australia, the privacy laws uh, basically mean that anybody's information about them and their property and their mortgage and their taxes is pretty much on lockdown. Um, whereas in the States, you can go to the local county or go to a data provider. You can go anywhere download information about the person, their property, their their taxes, their mortgage, um, a a whole range of things, their their liens on the property, um, how long they've owned it, if it was bought in a trust, how much they paid for it. You can download a bunch of information and market direct to them and start a conversation with a homeowner or or a property owner for land about what they want to do. You literally can't do that over here. Wow. You'd so, be breaking so quite you, a few laws. <laughs> oh, 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 okay. Okay. Never mind. Okay. So that that's obviously one major sticking point and probably the only sticking point you need to not be able to do business in Australia as far as yeah. real goes. But is there anything else? Uh the, the point of entry. So over here in Australia, the average house price over here is more than half a million dollars for an average house. Um, and that's just in the, the state that we're in. There's other places that are, are more than that. And to buy a piece of land, whether it's an infill lot or agricultural land or you know, residential, vacant, commercial, a whole range of things, the, the price is massively high, massively high. So the point of entry to the market here in Australia to then do what you want to do with that property and have an exit strategy that's going to make you money, it's a long-term game. You need a lot of money to get in and being able to do something with it and, and sell it at the right price to get out not only takes a lot more time, but a lot more investment. Whereas when we started in the States, our first house that we bought and did up, we paid $17,000 for this house. We put some money into it. And uh, and when we exited, you know, we, we made like $20,000 in a couple of months for our first house. And uh, and we ended up putting, you know, we, we split it into three separate units and, uh, and put three awesome people into it that needed a place to live. And it was great. We actually sold it as a an asset that was a performing asset with renters already in it. And uh, and that was a turnaround time of about three and a half to four months in total and not much money down from us. Uh, and uh, and we walked away with a huge profit. And it's like, 
well, that was easy. What else can we do? <laughs> right. So when, when we think about the average investor in Australia, I mean, do, is there a flipping model? Is there an arbitrage model where they're, sell, they're buying at low and selling high? And if so, how are they getting around some of these restrictions if they're growing a business? Yeah, so fixing and flipping over here is not that popular for a bunch of reasons as well. So over here, when you buy a property, you actually have to pay stamp duty on a property. And the stamp duty can be literally tens and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, it's a tax that we have here that, that we don't experience in the States. Um, and you also then, uh, depending upon how you structure that property, you know, if, if you own it for a, more than a while, you, you've got quite a hefty capital gains tax when you sell it as well. Now, I'm not going to give taxation advice here because people structure things differently. But um, the fix and flip market over here, yeah, there are people that do buy houses and do them up and try and sell them. But most of the time, they uh, are not doing it as, as a business per se. Um, so, you know, when you look at the comparison to the fix and flip market in the States, where people are literally getting two or three houses a month and cycling through them and doing a whole range of things, here it's a lot of slower process and uh, and a lot more involved to be able to get your money back and make some money. So a lot of people here will buy a house and live in it and do it up themselves and then sell it for a profit. So it's more an owner-occupier that will do that as opposed to an actual fix and flipper. Um, and as I said, the point of entry here, you've got to have a lot of money to be able to do it. When you consider that your very first deal was a hit right off the bat, I mean, I, I could only imagine how how much you caught the bug, right? And, oh. and, and what, 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 what were the early conversations like with your husband after that that first deal? What, what was he saying? And did he did you guys kind of reminisce on the the workshop that you guys went to? Like, what was that overall feeling like? It was wonderful. Um, it was a wonderful feeling, first of all, because we've made some great relationships during that process with some local contractors, a local realtor who is still on our team, Michael, he's amazing, um, you know, a local title company. So we went over there and set that all up and then we came back to Australia and managed the process remotely. And uh, so that was slightly stressful on a few things, but we can come back to that later. But the catching the bug was like, well, that was actually pretty easy. And Look how much money we made. And as you know, the US dollar to the Aussie dollar, not that great. Right, right. <laughs> Our dollar is pretty, often pretty weak compared to the US, although at the moment it's not bad. And so when we converted that back and said, we just made about $20,000, but in Aussie dollars, that's about $35,000. did not take much effort, didn't take much time. We probably personally invested, you know, a few days worth of work into that. Um, and, uh, and that was pretty easy. So in terms of catching the bug, it was it was on from there. So we only ended up doing a couple of fix and flips before we then switched to land. And there was, a, again, there was a turning point in that um, deray where we, we were probably a bit too late into the market for fix and flips. Um, we got a few really good deals, but we really noticed at a point in time that it became a lot harder to find a distressed property at the price point that we needed to so by the time we added rehab costs and then exited, the, the, the profit was still there. So we saw this shift in the market happening because that was at around the time when um, there was about, you know, I don't know how many fix and flipping house shows there are. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we got addicted to those two. And, um, and so we started to look at different asset classes. And also I think the turning point for us was the last house that we did 
was one of the most stressful uh, things I've, I've ever experienced. And we, we've, we've done some fix and flips here in Australia um, with rental properties that we've got. Also, just coming back to your question, if I can just add in Australia, one of the investment strategies that a lot of people have over here is what they call negative gearing, where they will buy mm. an investment property, put a tenant in it, but they actually make a loss on it. And they use that loss to write off their own personal taxes. It's crazy. <laughs> it's not yeah. a good strategy. <laughs> What's funny is, um, you know, we don't call those people uh, investors in the US. We call them speculators. <laughs> <laughs> There's we another call- few words. And we did that, right? I've had rental properties. My partner, Matthew's had rental properties and we were doing that. And, uh, and when we were both um, earning our own money from, you know, being employed, Sometimes that makes sense. If you're in a high tax bracket and you can offset some of those taxes, well, well awesome. But it's it's kind of a weird way to approach investing. Right. And, right. Uh, and then when we went out to be on our own, we're like, well, that's not a good strategy anymore because now we're business owners and entrepreneurs. We've got to think about cash flow. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know a lot of investors. I mean, till this day, it's the, the percentage is much, much lower, but a lot of investors negatively cash flow because they're in a super appreciating market. And that's just not investing fundamentals. But I'm glad I'm glad that you kind of switched over. But I do know a lot of people who still invest that way. And I'm just like, dude, like. Robert, because you know, my I grew up on Robert Kiyosaki. You know, that was oh, the, that was kind of my Kiyosaki. my entry point. And you know, if it's not paying you, it's not an asset, right? So, exactly. um, so I love how you brought that up. So again, you made the transition from flipping homes to 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 the land strategy because you noticed that there was a shift in the market when yeah. you were. What was that aha? It sounds like there was another major aha moment. But when you were deciding what strategy to go with, what what was so appealing about land? I guess what was so appealing about land is the speed in which you can acquire a property and wholesale it, or you can buy and hold and do other strategies. We've got a lot of our land properties now that we sell a finance. Um, Again, we're all about helping people. So we can sell a finance our properties and get a buyer to, to pay off that property to us over time, that a bank's not willing to support them. They don't have the funds to buy it outright. But if we can help them become property owners and help them to build their dreams on it later, that's great. So um, so we started to look at land through a number of lenses. One, they don't have houses on them. <laughs> <laughs> and I think because of that last house that we did, had so many problems. The house itself had problems. We had problems with contractors. We had problems with finance. We, it was really one of those situations where we thought, do we really want to go through this again? And are we able to find enough uh, properties at that, that low point in the market or have we seen the market shift and is it now time to kind of get ahead of the game with that? So the aha moment for us at that point is let's be flexible enough in our business to pivot when we need to um, and not be so wedded or stuck to one asset class or one decision point, like we need to have some flexibility in our business to, to switch quickly because markets do go in cycles, you know, that there's always highs and there's always lows and you've got to be really aware of your business strategy and, and Matt and I are very clear on what, it, what our strategy is at every point in time. And if we're not getting the results for that strategy, we stop and pause and go, okay, what's, what's changed? Um, and we did at that, that point in time. You know, we stopped and said, what's changed? We've done a few things. We loved it. We're now not loving it. Um, we didn't make money on that last one. To some degree, we might have even just broken even. And we invested a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of stress. Maybe there's something different out there. So we, we were just doing some research and we came across vacant land and, um, 
and spoke to some people. We then went and did some more training in how to uh, get into the land market as a different asset class. And then we were off to the races. That very first deal that we did, again, it was, we caught the bug again, right? It was, it was like, okay, we acquired that really easily. We put it back onto the market really easily and, and we, helped, we helped the seller out. They had a problem property with things that needed fixing. Um, and people might be listening going, what would need fixing in land? Because it's just a piece of land, right? But um, you know, I know on some of your previous podcasts you've spoken to land wholesalers and, and land does come with problems. There might be um, flood issues that need mitigating. There might be wetlands that need mitigating. There's probate issues with intergenerational land. Um, there's tax issues. There's liens, nuisance liens, where there have been squatters or trash on the property. Um, properties do actually come with their own set of problems. And our role as land wholesalers is to help out with that seller um, where a lot of realtors would walk away and go, that's too hard, don't want to deal with it. So helping out that seller to be able to be rid of the property and then putting it back out into the market as a marketable, sellable property and putting somebody into that property that wants to make use of the land. Now, they're not making land anymore, so it's... um, it's not something that is a finite resource and, and land does get recycled, but once it's used and a, and a dwelling is put on it or it's used for business or anything like that, then we, we celebrate that because it's like, okay, someone's making use of that and that means that their life is better as a result. So land's got a lot of pluses. I love that. Quick question. Have you ever done a deal while on a yacht in Croatia? <laughs> yes, we have. <laughs> And we've done a deal on the ski slopes in France. <laughs> Tell me about that deal in Croatia. So, yeah, we, we were taking a, a vacation, which uh, which we need at the moment. So thanks to COVID, we haven't had one in a while. But we were on a yacht in the middle of uh, the ocean in Croatia, and, and we were literally in the middle of the ocean. We weren't, like, moored up to an island or, or a dock or anything like that. We were just cruising through the ocean, and we had Wi-Fi, which was great. Um, anywhere we go, we need to have access to Wi-Fi and and our realtor uh, came through and he's like, just got this property that, that, I've, uh, that I've seen. I think you guys should take a look at it. And it's pretty hot right now. So jump online out now and take a look. And we jumped on and we did our numbers on the yacht. We were both, you know, in our, I was in my, my bathers. Matt was probably in his board shorts and, uh, and we were on this yacht and we're like, hmm, okay, this makes sense. So we had a 10-minute conversation about the property and, and um sent an SMS off to, to our realtor and said, it's actually a really good deal. The numbers stack up, um, get us a contract now. Five minutes later, he sends us the contract through. We sign it online. We open up our bank account. We put something into escrow and we're done. <laughs> and um, and then when we, were, when we were in France skiing, um, we, we sold a property in exactly the same way. And a lot of people are like, well, how would you sell a property? Because there's no one to notarize for you. Yeah, there is. There's always a way around it. In, um, in France, they're, they're called, a, you know, um, an attaché notaire, I think is the, I and it. I don't I don't have a French accent. I so. love the French attachés. <laughs> <laughs> so we found someone local who was like a, a local person that had the authority to sign documents for us. We got the, him to print them all up. We, we closed on the deal. We got it FedExed overseas from France back to the US and sold a property while we were skiing. So I think a lot of people in this industry feel like you need to be in the place that you do business, but we're living proof that you don't. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I love that. So that's why I I brought that up because I wanted to take it back to what you said earlier about you and your husband came to the U S and you kind of just like 
laid your roots. You kind of figured out, hey, I need to build a team and it's going to take me X amount of time to do that. But once I've built that team, I no longer have to be here. What was that process like? How long did it take? And how did you finally figure out what gelled and meshed with you guys as far as team members? Yeah, great question. Um, he's not my husband yet, by the way. I, I'm he, sorry. He's put a ring on it, but um, <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll get to that point at some point. Uh, we haven't had time. We're too busy building businesses. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. We can we can do that later. <laughs> um, but yeah, really good point. So we actually started uh, building our team from Australia. And I think a lot of people think they have to go over in order to do that. We didn't. We just started picking up the phone. So we started picking up the phone to local realtors. And funnily enough, one of the first realtors to call us back um, because we just wanted someone that we could reach out to to help us do deals, but also be some boots on the ground for us as well. So once we decided our location of where we're doing properties, we just started picking up the phone. We, we, we made a list of, okay, well, who do we need? We're going to need a, um, a real estate agent. Um, at, at that stage, because we were doing houses as well, we're going to need a title company. We're maybe going to need a real estate uh, attorney. Um, we might need someone who can help us out with probate. We're going to need an accountant. We're going to need all these things. So we made a list and we just started getting on the phone and calling people. And, and our introduction to all of those people, Dara, was we're based in Australia. We are real estate investors. We need somebody on our team who is investor friendly. And what we mean by investor friendly is this, 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 this and this. If you're that kind of person that wants to work with us, then we'd love to have a, a meeting with you. Um, and we got a few no's. We got people that like, no, nah, I don't really do that. I don't have experience in working with overseas people, et cetera, et cetera. But the ones that said yes, most of them are still the ones we're working with today. Wow. Uh, and then when we, so Michael, our real estate agent, he was one of the first ones that called us back and he was super excited. He's like, I work with investors, but I don't work with any Aussies and I'd love to speak with you. So he's still on our team now. He actually just went and did a signing for me today um, in, in Jacksonville, which is awesome. So he still helps us out on the ground. And um, and he then, because we got such a great relationship with him early, he also introduced us. So once we had that trust established with him, he was able to introduce us to his network, which was a lot of you know real estate attorneys or title companies, et cetera. And that first title company that we did a deal with, we've gone to other title companies. We keep coming back to this one that Michael introduced us to, and that's uh, Sunshine Title in, in uh, Jacksonville for anyone listening. They're amazing. And, um, and so it just became a case of you know, growing and nurturing those relationships. Um, and then in terms of our team, we also have uh, a team of four based in the Philippines that help us out. They've been on our team for more than two years now, most of them, and we treat them like family. We actually treat most of the people on our team like family, like, you know, we, we love them. And, and it just became a case of building those relationships, nurturing those relationships, not treating them like a resource, but treating them like a true team member. And even when I email my title company now, it's not, you know, hi, someone says, hey, team, thanks so much for everything you're doing. Here's where we're up to with this. And um, so I think uh, our team naturally formed through our relationships and how we approach our business. And uh, and they're still with us today, which is great. I imagine that there have been some hiccups. You know, it hasn't all been roses and sunshine. <laughs> and I imagine that the hardest part of building a virtual team was probably some of maybe what you were dealing with with that very last fix and flip, which is probably the contractors, right? I mean, contractors are probably the hardest part of an overseas team. And let me know if I'm wrong. I just want to kind of get a good right. understanding because I would imagine that just 
checking up on work and and making sure that she have the right contractors in place and replacing contractors and checking up on you know the bid i mean there's just so much that goes into that right what what was so challenging about the contractors that you worked with and having to constantly maybe find and replace and i mean what were some of the challenging parts about that the the main challenging part i was trust we put all of our trust in them but often that trust wasn't respected or returned and unfortunately, in that last fix and flip that we had, we had a few contractors and, and our main project manager that was managing all of our contractors, they didn't do the right thing by us and it, it broke the relationship and, and it cost us some money and that was pretty hard. And so that was one of those main decisions where we said, okay, this is actually pretty challenging to manage a team of contractors um, remotely because that was also at that point in time, again, being able to read the market, right? That was at the point in time where contractors a good contractor was rare because so many contractors were being sucked into all these fix and flippers that were doing all this work that it was like an undersupply of good contractors. And, um, and we got bitten. And, uh, and so that, that one bite enabled us to, to really stop and go, do we want to do this again? Or is it easier for us to look at another asset class? In terms of hiccups in land, yeah, we've had a few, you know. I think being entrepreneurial and taking risks when you do business, like calculated risks and putting yourself out there and doing a range of things, you do come across issues and problems. But our mindset around them is we don't look at it as a problem. We look at it as an opportunity. And that is an opportunity to learn what's a new way around this problem, to pivot, what can we do differently that we haven't tried before, to negotiate, you know, to, or to do all these things, to look at our systems and processes to make sure that if that problem comes up again, we're ready for it. So land itself, yeah, it's had some challenges. Most of the challenges you find with land is things like sellers going dark on you and disappearing and, and then we, we, you know, try and track them down and um, or buyers going dark on you and disappearing. But, again, I think we've learned now that we need to have um, – um, and we do now in our business, we've got a higher level of how we communicate with our buyers and sellers more regularly so that they don't go dark on us and they don't disappear and sell it to someone else or, or do certain things. Um, but uh, but other than that, there hasn't been uh, any huge hiccups. I guess the other thing is, as an entrepreneur, sometimes you have awesome months where you look at your bank account and go, this is amazing. And there are other months where nothing closes and you look and go, oh, this is hurting. But that's the whole thing about riding the waves of being able to, you know, stay ahead in, in and keep moving forward, even when times feel like they're a little bit tough. Absolutely. I'm a little behind you, so I'm going to take some notes on this part. But you have a growing team of four Filipino virtual assistants, and I have two. I'm wondering how you built that out over the years and what's the role and responsibility of each virtual assistant as you bring on another VA? Yeah, so we have four at the moment, and uh, and I think that's where our business is going to sit comfortably. Um, depending upon obviously you know different products that we launch uh, along the way as well. But um, we we found those four, and to be honest, the four that we have now are awesome, and they work together brilliantly. But we had to cycle through a few other VAs in in the beginning mm-hmm. to find the right mix and find the right trust uh, with people and the right skill set, but. Skill set is something that can be taught and our mindset is that we we create a learning culture in our team. So not only are they, we don't call them VAs, by the way, we, we call them our customer service specialists um, because they are that, you know, they're, they're not just an assistant, they're doing a whole range of things for us. 
And um, and so we we do create a learning culture for them where it's not just here do your job. We dedicate about twenty percent of their time um, per week to to doing more learning. So I'm finding them online courses. I'm creating opportunities for them to become subject matter experts in things and and really making sure that they're always motivated with things like that. Um, But building that team, I obviously have a a human resources background and organisational development. So it was pretty easy for me to start to sit back and think, what's the team structure need to look like? What are the different position descriptions and how are we going to measure performance? Um, How do I go out and recruit and find? And then really sitting back and having a very comprehensive training plan. Um, and I've shared that training plan with some of my, my inner network when they've been getting resources and they're like, wow, I didn't think about half of these things. <laughs> so you've really got to have the mindset with, um, with hiring resources around how do I set them up for success? It's not how do I get them to do a task, it's how do I set them up for success? Because if they're successful, I'm successful. Good people. So that is the end of the main portion of this interview. Don't forget that part two and part three are coming up in the future. Part two is all about a specific part of Alicia's team, right? Her virtual assistants, aka her customer service specialists. So we're going to talk about that entire process from A to Z. We'll talk about how to find and hire virtual assistants. We'll talk about the roles that each of her VAs play. We'll talk about keeping up with their performance and having performance-based metrics for future better results. And we'll talk about training that goes on every single week inside of her business. Better believe I have my two cents to add throughout this entire conversation as well as I have been working with virtual assistants for the past five years and many of our systems sound similar. So I'm going to give you guys a sneak peek into part two where Elisa's really just breaking down what her hiring process really looks like. And then we'll get into the last part of this episode, which is our lifestyle design acceleration hacks. Enjoy. Um, first and foremost, I've, I've got very detailed job descriptions, which which uh, not only map out here's what's the expectation of you in the role, but here's the skill set, but also the values that we're looking for in somebody. So what's your mindset and you know approach to work that we're really looking for? Then in the interview process, I've got a very structured interview that starts to weed out and, and talk about all of those things. And I don't just interview once, I interview twice. And that second one I have, uh, the first one I, I do on my own. And then when I get down to my final shortlist, oh, by the way, when I'm shortlisting, I'm even shortlisting before I've spoken to people. So I'm, I'm getting them to also do things like a disc profile uh, online where I'm looking at what's their work style. You know, are they somebody that's okay to work within certain restraints and, and are they detail oriented and all that kind of stuff. So looking at their work style and shortlisting and then doing round one interviews, round two interviews I do with a second person. So that's either Matt sitting in the background on, on Zoom with me uh, silently listening and taking notes and maybe asking some questions. Or uh, when I grew the team a little bit, I had my, my team leader, Claire, who's just wonderful. She sat in on the interviews with me. And then I got her to even ask them some questions about, you know, what how, how do you work? How do you solve problems? What do you do here? All these different things. So really using behavioural interviewing questions to ask about um, evidence-based results. You know, not just, uh, you know, tell me how you'd sort your day. That's No, that's a basic 101 question. It's like, tell me about a time when you got up in the morning and started your job and realised there was way too many things on your plate. What did you do? Mm-hmm. How did you approach it? 
What's your thought process that went into it? Who did you call on for help? So really getting into those behavioural-based questions to understand how they think um, and how they operate. And then once they come on board, uh, we don't get them to work straight away. We have about a two-week training program, which a lot of people are like, why would you pay someone and train them? Well, you have to. Uh, And they go through quite a lot of training with us um, where we teach them all about the history of our business, how we operate, our systems, our processes, call scripting, what to say in different situations, coaching. Um, we do role plays like, like they're nobody's business. I'm sure by the end of those two weeks, they're like, no, not another role play. But I don't want them to be put in front of our any of our customers because our team takes all of our seller calls and all of our buyer calls and I hardly ever speak to a seller or buyer anymore. And I think that that's down to the fact that we've done so much training with them to equip them to be confident and competent in what it is that they do. I love that. Man. So we don't we don't look at them as somebody else's resource that we're just using. No, they're ours. This episode is brought to you by Fundrise. It's never been easier to become a real estate investor. With as little as $500, watch your money passively work for you by investing in real estate through a crowdfunding platform like Fundrise. In just a few minutes, you can invest in hundreds of highly vetted multi-million dollar properties such as hotels, apartment buildings, and offices all around the US. Based on your financial goals, Fundrise will detail a few REITs, real estate investment trusts, for you to choose from. With the click of a button, you can own fractional shares of really amazing deals that before the Jobs Act of 2012 were impossible for the everyday non-accredited investor to even hear about much less invest in. Now, what I like about Fundrise is they're ridiculously low advisory fees. So dig this, at 1.5%, my actual returns on Fundrise are outperforming my stated returns and other assets, even though they advertise higher returns. So Fundrise has no hidden costs, no management fees, no unfavorable terms. And for the BTM tribe, head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash Fundrise. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E for your first three months of advisory fees totally waived. Yes, the actual only fee that Fundrise charges is being waived for three months. Simply head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash Fundrise and welcome yourself to a real alternative to investing in the stock market. That link one last time is beforethemillions.com forward slash Fundrise. Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks. What is your favorite Before the Millions book? Oh, there's so many to choose from. But um, uh, one of my favorite books was one of the first Tony Robbins book that I, I ever read, which was Awaken the Giant Within. And, and that was at that point in time where I was thinking, do I leave my job? Do I go and do something on my own? And that book was one of the ones that made me jump um, because it was like, I do have so much more potential and things to offer the world. And that was the book that helped me change that. Love it. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. This is a really, really simple one, but because I work across multiple time zones and we even have clients in Europe, um, uh, Israel, you know, we we work with people all around the world and there's an app called Time Buddy and it's free and I can put all the different time zones in in one app and it it lines them all up for me. So when I'm doing meetings with people and I've often got people that I'm trying to juggle five different time zones, Um, that's been super helpful. Otherwise, it's like, oh, especially with daylight savings and the things. Super simple app, but it has saved me from stuffing up times with people a lot. 
I am downloading that app today. Thank you, Alicia. <laughs> You're welcome. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? Yeah, flexibility. So uh, when when we were able to travel, um, Matt and I uh, are very much uh, nomadic in the way that we like to live our lives. We, we love travel. We love seeing the world. You know, I've, I've filled up a few passports already. And, um, and we love being able to do this from anywhere and having the flexibility to work our hours when we want. Um, and, yeah, we do work some really long hours uh, depending upon what's going on, but we do it on our terms and that's the bit that we love the most. You know, we've often said, would we ever go back and work for someone else? And it's always a resounding heck no. <laughs> absolutely. I love it. And I am the same exact way. That's the reason I started this podcast. So I am absolutely resonating with everything that you're saying. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? Oh, I'm actually going to put that back to my partner, Matt. Um, and there's lots of other people before that, but we we started this journey together and we created this together. And I think what's been essential is he's pushed me in certain ways to, to think differently and try certain things, and I've pushed him. Um, so having that person by your side to be able to go, hey, let's give this a go and let's give that a go has been instrumental. And I, I often think, would we be doing all the things that we're doing so much? We've got four businesses now. Um, if it wasn't for having somebody by my side, he's probably more of a risk taker than me. <laughs> so I'm going to blame him. <laughs> what were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? Time. And I think this is a tough one for a lot of people because we we don't see our friends and family like we used to because we're, we've got some big goals and big dreams. So sometimes you have to sacrifice time and everybody else who is, uh, you know, catching up with each other during the week or spending time on weekends doing stuff and we're working, that's a, a big sacrifice to make. And the reason why it's a big sacrifice to make is, one, I'm, I miss people but and we still do see people, don't get me wrong, but I think the biggest thing is it's hard for them to understand why you're not seeing them as much as what you used to. And so having some of those tough conversations with people to say, look, I'm really sorry, but we've got these big big dreams and big goals and we're kind of really focused on that right now. So, yes, you are going to come second. Um, but we hope that at a certain point in time when we get our businesses to where we, we can live that lifestyle that we have as our goal, that we can wind that back. Yeah, absolutely. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions? Fear. Uh, fear of, uh, of the unknown, fear of what might or might not happen, fear of losing control of, of your, your outcomes and your destiny, um, fear of what if this doesn't work and then I look bad in the eyes of everybody else, um, you know, fear of putting yourself out there and, uh, and not knowing what you're going to get back. I think that holds a lot of people back, and and that fear can also drive what what I you know, what we often hear is the the paralysis of analysis. So there's so many people that we've come across that go and do all this great training for um, what they want to do, you know, be, be that a real estate course or anything else, and then they sit there in the fear and they sit there in the paralysis of analysis and don't take action. And this business is all about taking action, mm-hmm. even if you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you left that <laughs> off on a great note. Alicia, this has been an amazing podcast. I've learned so much. We will have you back on for a part two and a part three. If the listeners want to learn it. a little bit more about you, they want to maybe say hi, drop in, find out a little bit more about the stuff you guys going have going on. Where can they find some of your information? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, they can go online to our, our marketing um, uh, business, which is superchargedoffers.com. They can email me direct. So Alicia, A-L-I-C-I-A at superchargedoffers.com. Now that's actually got nothing to do with our real estate business. Our real estate business is actually called landscouts.com. But I always like to give out my marketing one because it's uh, the one that uh, I'm on the most. <laughs> and our number for that is 888-538-5478. And the link to everything that we discussed, ladies and gentlemen, will be in the show notes. Alicia, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're gonna Thank get... you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I've had a whole lot of fun and we will talk to you very, very soon.